on that note, I mean, this is th these are so many allusions to kind of like our next uh, and, and, and final segment that I think will be a lot of fun. Um, you know, on Hot Hand Theory, we talk a lot about sustainability. We talk about concepts like variance and regression and, you know, regression to the mean. And we do a lot here to parse out like what is real in terms of output and performance, like what is actually sustainable long term versus what is not real. Like what do we expect to see? Uh, what things do we expect to see like a substantial change in either positively or negatively over a larger sample size? So Jeff and I have prepared for our guest Schwinn um, and ourselves really uh, a few trends that we've noticed for the Knicks and around the league. And we want to figure out whether they are real or not real. I'm super excited about this. Um, I'm going to go first because we kind of have been, this is like a perfect segue into my first question. Um, and both of you may have rants about this, so that'll be interesting. Uh, my question is, and, and Jeff mentioned Emmanuel quickly averaging 24 minutes per game. We'll be talking a lot about Grimes. My first question is about Jalen Brunson and Emmanuel quickly. If you look at the lineup data, when Brunson and quickly share the court, they have a ridiculous plus 13.5 net rating this season over 473 possessions. So not a, not a tiny sample size. The offense, when those two are on the court, is in the 97th percentile of the NBA. The defense is a solid 67th percentile in the NBA. Furthermore, if you go back to last year, so when Brunson and IQ shared the court last year, the Knicks had a plus 12.1 net rating over 1,906 possessions. Again, the offense was in uh, the 97th percentile, and the defense was was actually much better in the 87th percentile. So that's a that's a lot of we're talking almost 2,500 possessions of quickly and Brunson on the court, essentially dominating the league. So I feel like it's been commonly accepted that IQ couldn't be a starter on this team because you know he and Brunson wouldn't work, and you know the backcourt wouldn't work due to Brunson's defensive shortcomings and the lack of size. But we've seen 2,500 possessions that don't support this assumption. Um, so yeah, I, I, I guess that breaks down to me, you know, and, and looking at Grimes and some of the ways that he hasn't been able to, um, expose some of these smaller guards who can hide on him on defense. My question to you both is, do we have enough evidence to say that the Brunson quickly dynamic is real for the Knicks backcourt and the idea that quickly could not start moving forward on this team is, is, is not, is not real. It's false. I guess like uh, it's all it's one it's a thousand percent real like to your point you brought this up so it's a perfect example um, when we played Atlanta last time in Atlanta Grimes got injured in that game so he closed it quickly at the two next to Brunson and what did they do when they made their comeback they put Trey Young in the action every single time they had quickly and Randall run dribble handoffs and quick torch him right he hits a three he gets to the line i think three separate times in that quarter i think he had a floater like he he roasted him and that's the like that's the encapsulates everything you don't even have that option with quentin grimes he cannot do any of those things um or at the bare minimum he won't do those things right now so like it is absolutely real they killed the Cavs in those minutes last year too in the first round of the playoffs um in the brunson quickly minutes like it's a hundred percent real. I mean, if we're getting just forget the numbers part of it, but like when you just hear them talk about it and like talk about playing with the playing off of each other and like kind of how they have a pretty good intuitive understanding of how to like, like, you know, quickly has this bad habit. He'll drive into the lane, pick up his dribble, especially when he goes left, he'll pick up his dribble. And then he's got to like pivot around. You watch when he does that, when he's on the floor with Brunson, Brunson's already like moving. 
Like he's already moving to like make himself available for a three or cutting or whatever. Um, and you watch when Brunson does his like Brunson's one of the weirdest players to play off of, by the way, because nobody knows what the fuck he's doing at any time. I'm not even sure he knows what he's doing sometimes. Like he's just like dribbling, like he's like got so many moves, and you're like, where when are you going? Like, what are you taking the jumper? Are you driving? What's happening here? Um, but like if you watch kind of his herky jerky style, you'll see like and I think Grimes maybe struggles with this. Maybe this is like a problem for him. But like, I think quickly plays off that well. I think DiVincenzo probably plays it off off at the best. To be honest, he's really really good playing off of Brunson. Um, but like, you can see they have a natural chemistry. And then when you hear them talk about each other in post games or whatever, like there is genuine like appreciation. Like not on a lot of teams. If I were if, like, there are versions of an Emmanuel quickly elsewhere in the league and versions of Jalen Brunson elsewhere in the league where if they, a team signed a, a Jalen Brunson to come onto this team and basically like start over the Emmanuel quickly, that they would not have good chemistry, that they would not get along, that they would not, you know, exude kind of like joy in each other's performances. Um, so like on every level of can it work, will it work? Is it a viable solution or a viable option long-term? It absolutely is. Like, there's just no argument against it aside from preconceived weird notions about, like, well, are they too small? And it's like, look, maybe there are matchups where it's not going to be ideal. And guess what? In those matchups, you don't need to play them as many minutes together. Like, it, this is not rocket science. This is completely normal stuff. Um, you know, there are matchups where, like, Boston will probably want to have two bigs on the floor, right? They will want to have Horford and Porzingis on the floor. But there are matchups where they'll be like, Horford is like 90 years old. We actually don't want him on the floor for this matchup. So, um, like, it's like anything else. These two can absolutely play together. And I think I'll go even one step further. I think any argument about the value of keeping quickly or not keeping quickly or whatever, anybody that brings up that we have Brunson as a mark against resigning quickly is a fucking idiot uh, and has no idea what they're talking about. Because that is actually like, an argument for keeping quickly with how good those two are together. Just a per usual, me and Schwinner in lockstep right down to you're a fucking idiot. If you think that, <laughs> if you think that having Brunson precludes you from having quickly, uh, you talked a lot about the offense. I just want to say that hmm. I think quickly versus Grimes defensively um, highlights really important parts of analyzing defense in general. Because whenever you bring up, oh, maybe quickly should just start, you'll get hit back with, but that Grimes point of attack defense. The thing is, is that offenses these days aren't like they were even, you know, 10 years ago. They're much more team, uh, team oriented. There's much less isolation, uh, save, save a few players who are almost relics. Um, Our Knicks. Yeah. From from a team offense standpoint. Yeah. I mean, it, Grimes would be super valuable playing against the Knicks. You yeah, know? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> um, but with quickly in the starting lineup, especially with the mini leap RJ Barrett has taken as a defender, you're not really losing that much because even if you're losing point of attack defense, what quickly does for you off the ball is so helpful, specifically related to Jalen Brunson. Because teams don't just say, oh, well, this guy's our best player. We're going to run through him no matter what. The more you watch the Knicks and the more you see that Jalen Brunson is a target. And when Jalen Brunson is being targeted, 
Emmanuel quickly is so much more valuable to your defense than Quentin Grimes is. Quentin Grimes is helping take the ball away from the other team's best player. Emmanuel quickly is actively helping you defend the possessions when Jalen Brunson is being exposed. And so that's why that data is so overwhelming on the defensive side, because quickly is like an extra man out there when Jalen Brunson's being put into actions. Um, and then the second thing I want to say is regarding the rotations. Another thing people will say is, yeah, but what do we do about the bench unit? We need someone to use the bench unit. Newsflash people, you fucking stagger them. That's what you do if Emmanuel quickly is your starting shooting guard. It's it, All you got to do is take him out halfway through the first and the third and then start the fourth, second and the fourth quarter with him and Brunson on the court. It really isn't that hard. I could find you know a middle school basketball coach who could figure out stagger. Who does it right now with R.J. Barrett? Right. Like can, so, this is this is why I like because there was that the, the 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 Milwaukee game we played right quickly. I think only played like twenty two minutes that game, even though he's the only other guy on the team that could create a shot. And I remember after the game, there were people like, "Well, how, how could he play more?" Like Hart had to play because RJ was out there, big team. And I'm like, "Fucking minutes are not binary. Like this is not how lineups work. Like you can, like th- this is just not like your brain is not functioning properly. You need help." Um, but like the, the, the stuff people thing. always talk about with the reasons people give have given in the Tibbs era for why stuff has to happen, why the status quo has to remain <laughs> has always been so infuriating because every year it's only, they only emphasize the things that either Tibbs emphasizes or that reinforce the status quo. So year one, Oh yeah, I mean, I don't like Alfred Payton either, but we need his size at the point of the attack, and Tibbs loves his rim pressure. It's like, dude, he was shooting forty five percent at the rim. Who fucking cares about his rim pressure? Do you remember? Like, do you remember Berman had a piece after? So after Payton left, so we struggled, right? We're struggling at the start of the next season. He had I don't remember if it was an article or if he said it in a tweet, but it was something about like we miss Alfred Payton's steady hand. I, I remember one of the funniest <laughs> things that he's ever come out. <laughs> Berman is, hey, he's he's in on the joke though. He's you know he's he's a he's a good he's a good reporter. Um, uh, so guys, guys, I gotta I gotta jump in just because I mean I agree with you, and I I don't want to I don't want to then do the third like rant that just cosigns everything that you both said. <laughs> I I guess I guess how I'm thinking about it is at least from a devil's advocate perspective, I think some of the thought that goes into this is. You can't have quickly as you're starting to, you know, let's say getting paid $25 million a year, because when you get to the playoffs, you know, teams want to isolate more teams, teams want to expose your weakest defenders more. They get targeted um, quickly strength, maybe an issue in isolation going against bigger, even bigger ones, but definitely bigger twos. Um, and it's not like you're going to be like going against a team that has a big two guard. And then you're going to say, well, it's not the right matchup for quickly Our starting two guard making $25 million a year. I guess he's going to sit for most of this series. Like you still are going to play your best guys the most. Do you think there's any legitimacy to that? Like putting him on a larger contract, allocating a ton of minutes towards him and then him being potentially a weakness when you come to like a, you know, a playoff series, a seven game playoff series. Do you think there's any legitimacy to that? Um, sure, but I also think, like, you can't assume it won't work without trying it. And I feel like that is what annoys me the most about this, because I'm like, first of all, we we have tried it. It's been awesome. And we've tried it against all kinds. Like, we played the fucking Magic last year. That team is a bunch of giants. It's just like a bunch of giants. And we beat them 
closing games with Quickly and Brunson together on the floor. Like, this is the, probably the biggest team in the league. When it, we beat the Celtics last year at the Garden, um, the game before the Quickly game in, in Boston. But we won that game with Brunson and Quickly at the one and two, closing out that game down the stretch of the game. We beat Miami in Miami last year with Quickly and Brunson closing the game. We beat Miami at home twice. Uh, one of the times with Quickly, not Brunson was out. The other time was, guess what? It was not just Quick. It was Quickly, Brunson, RJ Hart. Like that was a lineup to close the game. And then actually the 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 full closing lineup though actually was Brunson out. Grimes came in. Very rare moment of Tibbs uh, rolling with what was working and not what he wanted to work. Um, but like you have examples of these two being awesome together against good teams, against teams that have size. Like it's just you know, is, are there scenarios where it could be a problem? Sure. Like maybe if we play the fucking Clippers in the NBA Finals, it'll be a problem because you're like, well, I don't know where to put these guys. These wings are have like a, such a huge advantage. Until that point in time, I, I don't really think it's an issue. Like, you know, are you undersized against Boston because they have Drew and Derek White? Sure. Would you really feel like going into that matchup, you're like, oh my God, like we're, the, the size in the backcourt is totally against us here. I'd have been like, that's fine. Like, if Derek White's gonna be trying to cook Emmanuel quickly, if like that's the, you know, that's if that's what the, we're trying to do here, like, then we've already won the series. Congratulations to Boston. Like, it's it just stupid. Like, I I just reject the idea that it's so untenable in in series. Like, I, if that's the case, then I the same people I never want to hear about Cleveland being a contender ever. I never want to hear it because they have Garland and Donovan Mitchell, so they should never be. They can't. They can't win. They can't win because they have two small guards. So if you want to apply that logic, that's fine. But then you be consistent about it. If Quickly and Brunson can't work, Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland can never work. And also, don't ever fucking tell me that we sh- that you want to trade for Donovan Mitchell or that we should trade for Donovan Mitchell. You can't have it both ways. It either is a problem or it's not. Otherwise, shut the fuck up. And people need to get better at assigning percentiles of impact to their analysis and what i mean by that is when you you brought up the celtics as an example if the knicks play the celtics even at home they're at best this season going to be like 40 percent to win that game if the knicks lose a game and emmanuel quickly is in the starting lineup next brunson and even if you know Derek white you know takes advantage of that size size advantage on a few possessions don't act like the Knicks went from 100% to win the game to 0% to win the game. And the difference was that small thing. Like they were 40% to win the game before. And even if you can make the argument that the difference between, you know, Grimes and quickly that their size, it was a huge difference. It's only going to affect by a couple of percent, you know, like these things, there's so much that goes into a basketball game. And I feel like people don't ever account for the fact that, one thing very rarely makes or breaks a win. All these margins add up. So do I think there's validity to the question you asked, XJ? Absolutely. I think there's going to be times when quickly size is going to hurt him and it's going to uh, it's going to make him less valuable as a basketball player. Is it going to be the difference between wanting to pay him? And in a macro perspective, Emmanuel quickly on $25 million is going to be a great deal for whoever gives him that money. I'll worry about the rest later. You know that I, and maybe that's a little bit too simplistic, but I, I don't think that quickly's lack of size is going to 
overwhelmingly swing a game. I would just much rather have the hugely plus EV contract and live with the warts when they come. Yeah, I mean, I I'm in full in full agreement with both of you. Uh, consensus across the board. Uh, this this phenomenon, this concept, this IQ and Brunson backcourt is is absolutely real. Um, Jeff, do you want to go next with the with the next one? Because we're, we're we were two on the same page with this one. We got to have some disagreement somewhere. <laughs> I'd love to. Um, just to switch gears a little bit, I was I don't know what's going on with the with the Grizzlies. And I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts overall and what you think about them. You know, I know no, I know John Morant's been out. That's turning out to be a much bigger deal than people thought. And hey, maybe losing Tyus Jones, having that solid backup point guard, is extrapolating that phenomenon. You would have thought that Marcus Smart arriving would have mitigated that somewhat. Um, me and you have been talking a little bit, XJ, about the Grizzlies all season, and I, I, I pitched a question to you asking if it's possible that you know, maybe impact metrics have overrated Desmond Bain and underrated John Morant because John Morant carries such a larger burden in terms of the overall offense. And uh, we kind of talked about that a little bit. And then the Grizzlies got off to that woeful start. And I asked you the question again, and you said something that stuck with me. You said, why are we even talking about Desmond Bain? Why aren't we talking about Jaron Jackson Jr.? Um, So, I guess my question is, is this really, are, are the Grizzlies really this bad? And is Jaron, has Jaron Jackson Jr. regressed or is he just in a, is he overly reliant on John Morant to provide, you know, plus offensive output? Cause his defense has remained fine and it hasn't been as good. The rebounding is as bad as it's ever been. They're really missing Steven Adams. I think I, I remember reading or I remember looking it up uh, like a week ago Jaron Jackson Jr. is getting like half the defensive rebounds that Mitchell Robinson is when he's on the court or something, which is remarkable. Um, so yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear you guys' thoughts on the Grizzlies and Jaron Jackson Jr. Yeah, I mean, I can jump in. I, I, to me, part of the problem is abs- or a larger part of the problem is Jaron Jackson Jr. Much less so than Desmond Bain. I think. Baines pl- played overall really well, especially offensively. And I do think, I mean, we talked about this on a previous episode. I'm not going to dive too much into it, but there's a big difference between the roles that Bain plays and thrives in and the role that Ja plays and thrives in. And I think either wouldn't thrive in the other's role. And we may say, well, the results that we're seeing this year indicate that Ja's role is more important to the team's success. But we actually saw last year when Ja was out for a considerable portion of the year, the Grizzlies didn't miss a beat. They were dominant in that time and, in fact, played better without Ja uh, during the last season. So I think I think we do, in general, have to be careful, uh, you know, carrying things over from year to year and saying, like, look, with Ja last year, they were this. And now with, without Ja this year, they're this. It's just two different seasons, two different teams, two different dynamics. There are a lot of things that are different, um, different players. And the biggest one, to me, is Jaron Jackson. I, I don't think that Jaron Jackson's performance, as bad as it's been, is real. I don't think so. Um, Jaron Jackson, if we look at impact metrics, and I know that people have different opinions about how relevant they are or how meaningful they are, regardless of where you land on that, um, his defensive EPM the last two years was a 3 and a 2.5. Those, those are 97th percentile plus in the NBA. And this year, it's a plus 0.8. That's a that's a huge drop off, and we don't see drop offs to that extent 
um, almost ever in terms of season to season. Uh, for a guy who's 23 going on and going into his uh, age 24 season, we never see that kind of thing. Not only is he have that really kind of unreal drop off uh, defensively, but in terms of his efficiency, he has completely dropped off the map. Last year, he was at 61% true shooting. This year, at 53% true shooting. Um, his effective field goal, so when you take out the, the, the free throw shooting, he's down to 46.8%, which is 6th percentile in the NBA. This is worst of the worst of his career. Worst of his career and one of the worst at his position in the entire NBA. Like, that is unfathomable that he could get that bad in one year. Last year, he shot... 35% from three this year, 28.3% from three. Like I, I just, and this is, this one's even worse. 63.9% at the rim last year, 53.2% at the rim. I, I just don't, it's really difficult for me to believe being, you know, a data driven person and, you know, being someone who really relies on, on some of the statistical trends that we see. And in order to understand what is kind of real, what's small sample, what's sustainable, what's not, I, this kind of drop-off indicates to me there's something else going on, maybe off-court stuff, um, maybe a Julius Randle type of situation, um, because this is a Julius Randle drop-off level that we're talking about from JJJ. Yeah, and I so mean, I just don't think it's going to continue, is, is, my, is my point. Yeah, I mean, right now, uh, EPM has a plus 1.7 for, or just Julius Randle is a plus 1.7 for the year. Jordan Jackson Jr. is at plus 0.4. His offensive EPM, he's minus 0.4. Julius Randle's at plus 0.7. Um, and this is, mind you, this is with Julius registering a lower true shooting percentage than Jaron Jackson Jr. He's that's, at 50. That's 9. remarkable. Yeah. yeah. 50.9, and he's got a lower EFG, 45.8, fourth percentile. Um, I think. I, 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 I like. I really like Jaron Jackson Jr in his draft class. I thought he was awesome. I thought he was a really great prospect. I think I've had him second in that class after Luca, obviously. Um, but like a lot of that was projecting. Okay. He sucked at rebounding in college and it was just like, okay, he's got the frame. He's obviously got the size. Like this should get better. This, this should not suck forever. This does not feel like a, a, a barrier that he can't um, figure out. But he has not figured it out. He's actually regressed. And I think if you're a big man, and, and so there's another thing happening here too. We're seeing this all around the league. Teams are now around the league going for offensive rebounds more. So it is accentuating one of his weaknesses. And he's not just a bad rebounder individually in terms of like, you know, he doesn't go up and get contested boards or he doesn't have this, like he doesn't box out. So he's a terrible team rebounder also. And when Steven Adams is not there and when Brandon Clark is not there and whatever, you can go on down their injury list. Even somebody like Ja probably helps him on the glass. Um, but like it exposes him more. And I mean, I don't know. I, I watched their game the other night. I forgot who they played. They actually won the game, but Bain had like a moment with Aldama at halftime. They were like walking off the floor. It might have been Aldama or Laravia. I don't know. One of those fucking guys. Um, but they were like yelling at each other coming off the court at halftime because uh, Bain just basically didn't close out on somebody. Or it was, when they played the Mavs, they played the Mavs. Grant Williams hit a three, um, and Bain like just did not close out. He like looked at him and was just like, eh, I don't really feel like doing it now. And Grant Williams drained a three. So it's a very Julius moment. 
And uh, I think it was LaRavia that was like going off. And obviously this is not directly related to Jaron Jackson Jr. But I think this speaks to the point of what XJ is talking about. That There's a lot of shit going on with that team right now, right? Like you got this whole John Morant thing. They trade for Marcus Smart, who comes in, wasn't very good when he played, also out now, right? They're giving a bunch of minutes to just bad players. Like we saw Derek Rose last year. He couldn't guard me. Uh, and now he's like getting serious minutes for them. You know, say what you want about John Morant. I believe like by defensive EPM, he was actually pretty good last year and the year before. Um, but like he's definitely better than Derek Rose. I don't think Desmond Bain's been as good on defense this year. I actually feel like he's dropped off the last couple of years, um, which makes some sense. He's got way more offensive responsibility. I understand that. But these are just all like I know EPM does its best to kind of isolate the player impact, but it's impossible to divorce the situation from an individual player's impact. They are tied. Um, and I think his situation is just so drastically changed that this is not the same team. It's not. And like, forget, I mean, look, say what you want about the guy. I think it says something that Memphis's defense has fallen off and Houston is what sixth in defensive rating right now. Dylan Brooks, like that guy mattered, you know, he mattered. And, um, it's it's a totally different team. I think they've lost a lot of what made them what they were on the floor. Like you know, we just talked about how the Knicks know who they are. W- Memphis was like kind of doing Knicks stuff, right? Like they were like a dominant rebounding team. Ja kind of kamikazes to the rim, and like Steve Adams gets them seven thousand possessions. Like they were doing a similar type thing. You don't have any of that now. You don't have the two main components of that. You don't have your driver of offense. And you don't have the guy that got you the extra possessions. And not only was he the guy that got you extra possessions, he's also the guy that, you know, let Jaron Jackson Jr. kind of like not be good at rebounding and it was still okay because Stephen Ives can just take care of it. It's kind of like Mitch and Randall. Randall's a way better rebounder than Jaron Jackson Jr., though. You know, whatever we want to – like wh- one thing I would say is when Randall actually decides like, okay, I'm going to try today, he is a really good rebounder. I mean, I thought he got a lot of rebounds in that Raptors game that were like – not easy. Those were like not bullshit rebounds. You were real competitive rebounds. This is against guys that are, you know, trying to, to, you know, Pascal's a big guy. Scotty Barnes is a big guy. Like these are not small dudes. And I would bet you play, if we took Jaron Jackson Jr., put him in place of Randall in that game, you'd probably lose it. Um, and at, at the very, at the very minimum, you probably get, I mean, we, we actually lost the rebounding battle in that game, but you probably get absolutely waxed in that rebounding battle. Jaron Jackson Jr. is playing in, in his spot. Um, so I, I would say he's regressed, but I also think there are reasons beyond outside of his control for that regression. And I would, my last thing I'll say about him is I'm not sure, like, are we sure that he didn't just have, he, his career has been very weird in the sense of like, if you look at his kind of like his, his true shooting stuff. Okay. So his rookie year when he's 19, he's at 58.9. The next year is 59.2. Then age 21, 55.2 true shooting. Okay. Uh, age 22, 53.6. Age 23, which is last season, he jumps up again, 61.1. And then this year it's at 53.3. He might have a little Julius in him, man. He might just be like a up and down offensive player. And I think that, and like, look, I mean, have you seen the way the guy shoots a three? Like, I mean, it, like I was talking to, I don't remember who I was talking to about this, but it's like, you know, we see like quickly or DiVincenzo take deep threes and it like, it's easy for them, right? It's not, it doesn't look like they're straining, like they have range. I saw Jaron Jackson Jr. have to take a three like 
three feet behind the arc. And I swear to God, he had to get like his whole body into it. And you know, he's got that like ugly ass shot. It was like one of the ugliest things that I've ever seen. He barely hit the rim. I was just like, what the hell is going on here? Like, I, why do you it's ever, a like, very ugly form? It is, is revolting. I, I can concur. <laughs> why? How did it any, like, I cannot believe he was young and somebody saw him shooting like that. And they were just like, Oh yeah. Cook bro. Like that's it. <laughs> Like really? I mean, Tyrese Halliburton is somehow <laughs> one of the best shooters in the NBA, and he has an as ugly in a form as not as bad as Jaron Jackson Jr.'s, but it's it doesn't look good either. Jaron so, Jackson Jr. Uh, looks like he's about to take a shit before he shoots. He's like, <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> Uh, I wish I did not have that image of Jaron Jackson Jr. taking a <laughs> shit now in my mind, but it's there. Um, yeah, I don't, do you want to add anything to that, Jeff, or your own question? No, I I think Jaws just – I'm going to continue to believe that he's more important than yeah. – I, I just think he drives everything there. and I think allowed, I underrated him too. I, I 100% underrated what he brought to the table for them. The way he collapses defense, his passing, his everything he does inside the arc, I think it just opens everything up. It, it, he's kind of like he's an inverse Curry almost. Um, I think he provides gravity and elevates his teammates in ways that we can't yet fully capture. And it wouldn't surprise me if the Grizzlies are just very quickly very good if he's assuming he's back to being how he was who knows how he'll rebound from this suspension and you know but if he is john Mar- the john Morant we know it wouldn't surprise me if everything kind of works out for them um and i wouldn't be surprised to see them i i, don't, I think it's too late for them to be a top six seed just because the west is so tough that that might be wrong but it wouldn't surprise me to see them in the thick of the play-in race and cause some cause some issues for whoever they they play there's there's also like a relentless a relentlessness to how Ja plays. Um, like you see this sometimes when they make they made like a bunch of fourth quarter comebacks a couple of years ago. Um, and he was kind of like central to that. They had one against the Knicks that was really fucking annoying. Um, but like he just he just constantly is attacking. He's constantly attacking, constantly attacking. Um, and I've definitely I, I do think so a couple of years ago their team overall was a lot better. So they had that wing record when Ja sat. Um, and I do think like in the context of that team's season, he was overrated, but in terms of like the broad long-term picture of the Grizzlies as an organization, um, no, he's not overrated. He think he is like, they, if they, if he comes back and he's not Ja, they have serious problems because they've wasted so much draft capital the last few years, um, that they're not getting anything out of, right? Like LaRavia, Aldama, um, who's the guy they moved up for Zaire Williams, I saw I saw some Zaire lineup data today that I guess it's been rough this season, him being back in the rotation. Um all of his two man data is brutal. Like like Jaron, Bain, all, all the other guys they want him playing with, his net rating with those guys is, you know, negative fifteen, negative thirteen per hundred. And then these guys are winning their minutes overall. So it's like I don't know. The Zaire minutes apparently have not gone well in Memphis. I, I've watched. I can't say I've watched every Memphis game, but you know, they're, I, I they're a brutal them. team to watch right now. It's like not enjoyable. <laughs> hey, they're like, uh, they're two and zero oh in the Derrick Rose starting era. So, <laughs> yeah. Speaking of, like, 
two days. So speaking of weird lineup data, uh, Derek Rose is his on off defensively. He's in the hundredth percentile in the NBA <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, and that is all the evidence you need for noise and data. Um, no, I, 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 my last thing that I want to say about it is I actually would be shocked. I'd be honestly shocked. And I would, uh, you know, I would come back and want to talk about it on the pod. If John Morant came back and like was able to elevate this team to like any real contention for anything. Like, I think this is a different team. I think it's a bad team, and I don't think Jaw coming back is going to. I think they'll be better, and I love Jaw, and I think Jaw's impact is tremendous. I don't think he's like a guy who can come in and change. And without him, the team is terrible, and with him, somehow they're like contending for you know the second round or something like that. I I just I I don't see it. I think I think this is like not a good team right now. So, um, so they're but- they're five and fourteen right now. Can you? Can you just be a little bit more specific about your outlook? Like, what can Ja do? What What are the limitations? What What do you what, Where do you think the highest they can fly this season is? Um. So they're 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 five and you said they're five and fourteen. So they have six more games without Ja. Let's assume they win two of those games, right? So they'll be seven and and uh, eighteen, and Ja comes back. I think. Ja can maybe get them to a play in tournament like spot. And um that's about it. They're either if they make it into this postseason, they go out first round. I think that's that's pretty much the, the ceiling I would give this team with Ja Morant. All right. I mean, I don't think that's unrealistic. Again, I think the hole is just gonna be too big to climb out of. But is there a world for you where they only like they end up in the play in? But still, they they make up so much ground. You're like, wow, this is a fundamentally different team. Do you think you'll be able absolutely. to absolutely? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's just hard for me to specify what that would look like. Like, you know, you know, their 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 net rating or like, I it's, I I can't come up with that on the fly. But yeah, absolutely. There's a way. There's a world where the same thing happens that I said, but my assessment of it is completely different based on the context the context of how it occurs. So for sure. Um, I, I'm just, I just think this is not a good team and it's different from previous Grizzlies teams. And I think it's tough. I do. I genuinely think it's tough to compare teams across seasons. Um, cause so many things are just different and, and small things. Um, but, uh, but, but let's, let, let's go to our, 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 my second question about, um, what is real or not real. And mine is about the weirdest team, in my opinion, in the NBA right now. And maybe you, you, you both would disagree. The Golden State Warriors. Um, what what is this team? <laughs> I'm so confused by this team. Um, their starting lineup of Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green, and Kevon Looney is a minus eight point seven uh, net rating on over two hundred um, two hundred possessions. That is really incredible, considering that this is a lineup that has dominated in years past and i want to pull up the what they're in the league last year i was gonna say i want to pull up what their what their net rating Literally, was for last year and while you're pulling it up xj i just want to yeah. say this is uh, this is an area where schwinn being our guest probably isn't the best because two weeks ago we were like you know if if, if uh, a deity came from above and was like, well, actually, Steph Curry is the greatest basketball player of all time. Me yeah. and you would be like, oh, yeah, that's that's pretty reasonable. Schwinn is just all he's uh, he's all aboard with us. So we're getting no pushback here with, with <laughs> Damn, Steph Love and, and anything. So. <laughs> I, will, I will say, though, like just I know this is not what this is about, but like I think what their management has done over the last like 
three years is a fucking joke. Like, I agree. Yeah, these picks they've made, you drafted like again. Like, I hate to go back to this, but maybe like you know, I don't hate to go back to it because I'm like, wow, the Knicks know exactly who they are. This is awesome. Um, but like when you have an identity, like to not to fundamentally not understand what made you great is so ridiculous. It's the type of shit that Jeff and I at various points in, in Tibbs's worst moments as a coach with the Knicks, we kill him for it. Right. Where you're like, you don't even know what the fuck is making you win basketball games right now. Like you are not correctly identifying these things for them to pick James Wiseman and Kaminga is unbelievable to me. I think Kaminga has a chance to be a player somewhere else. Wiseman was always terrible, but whatever. The point being is both of these players were, the idea of them were toolsy, athletic dudes who didn't have great feel for the game, who were raw, okay? And you're telling them, hey, we're going to draft you to bridge this new, into this new era, and we're going to indoctrinate you into, like, the warrior's way. And what is the warrior's way? The warrior's way is, like, playing super fast, playing very, very instinctively, intuitively, uh, making quick reads in real time. Like, it, it requires a higher level of basketball intelligence than most teams require as a baseline to start from. And to saddle Steph with these guys who do nothing like that Steph wants to do and or what makes Steph great. Like, do you remember how many times you see like Steph would run a pick and roll with Wiseman and then Wiseman would just like roll into the post and stick his hand up? And like, are you? Why, why, Wiseman is like not. Wiseman is like not skilled. Randall, like, yeah. It's really fun. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Jeff. Oh, I just want to say, you know, the Wiseman pick was ridiculous from when it happened. Yeah, they could have, they could have survived that. Picking Kumingo over Franz Wagner is going. I'll never get that's, it. That's 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 the that's. Franz is perfect for them. It, it, everything they want to do, and he would have been perfect for them from day one. And the college tape was there. The film was there. If, if somehow, you know, the Thunder took Franz and Giddy was available, but they were like, eh, we don't really feel super comfortable with the Australian. Like, okay, I fine, fine. I would have been okay with taking Kuminga there because if you look at the rest of that draft class, whatever like there there are some good late round guys but like it wouldn't have been reasonable to expect the warriors to take them there and so yeah if it went fron six kuminga seven giddy eight fine but and i know you're a little biased here schwinn because he went to michigan but i don't see you as like this homer who oh my god franz no you were saying how is franz not a top three pick like there it's not like this guy was a secret. Him falling to eight was considered laughable at the time, and the Magic got a huge steal. Well, it was it was the crazy thing. I forgot who was uh, whoever, but one of these college you know uh, NBA guys on Twitter, he said that like in his he had a database that had gone back I don't know like 10, 15 years or something that he'd built out, basically just like tracking plus minus data for college guys, and he was like the only player who had a, a more significant impact than Franz Wagner over his time at Michigan was like McCall Bridges when he was at Villanova. So it's like, it's like, these are like the guys where it's like, yeah, when you watch them, it's like, they're not necessary. I mean, Franz definitely had way more game than McCall off the, off the bounce, but like, they're not like, they don't jump out as like, Oh, franchise caliber star. They're, they're not like the, what you envision in your head is that type of player. 
but like the impact, everything they do, connecting lineups, giving you options in different situations, like they do all of those things. Um, and yeah, I'll, I'll just never get, I'll never get it. I'll never get it. Um, and I mean, look, I, let me tell you, everybody else in the West should be happy because if they, I mean, forget that, like, they could have taken Halliburton or two, but they, let's say they take Lomelo, take Lomelo, and you take fucking, because the Kaminga pick, mind you, that was the Timberwolves pick. So that was like not, that was, that was going to be seventh no matter what, right? So even if Lomelo was really good, they were always going to have that seventh pick. They get Franz there, like, they don't just win in 22. They probably are at least in the Western Conference Finals last year, and they're looking great this year, right? Like, I just can't imagine a, a young player more suited to them than than Franz. But I, I didn't mean to hijack this conversation. I, no, but like, no. I, what they've I done is a great point. Is just criminal. It, it's a great point because I, I just I do think that they were thinking they can get some of these athletic, like super hyper athletic guys, and as you said, Schwinny, indoctrinate them into their kind of way of playing basketball. And it's like. We're cl- we're clearly saying you can't do that, at least not with the guys that they have. Well, um, you know, yeah. this is like, this is like a really good reason for why when people are like, well, "Why can't Julius just play the Draymond role?" I'm like, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't work <laughs> like that. And I always say this to people: it's the 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 style of play can be uh, an ability. Like it's something that you have or you don't. Like the same way we look at, oh, this guy can shoot, he can't shoot. Um, you know, the, the the styles of play that we see, like those are also attributes and abilities that guys either have or don't have. And it's really difficult to train train it into a player, um, you know, if that's not something that they're, they're, they're um, kind of geared towards. So I, just to finish my point. So I was saying that they're the Warriors starting lineup, um, Curry, Thompson, Wiggins, Green, Looney, Minus 8.7 net rating this year. Last year, over 700 possessions, plus 22.1. The same exact lineup, the same five guys. Nothing different about it besides them each being a year older. Um, I don't know how to explain that. I don't know if either any of you can explain that. On top of the fact that Draymond Green, yes, the same Draymond Green, the only one that you know, is shooting 47% from three on three attempts a game. So not like he's just not shooting at all. He's shooting three attempts a game and he's making over one. How do you, how, how can we explain this? Is this real? Is what we're seeing? Is this real for the Warriors lineup? Or is this like a blip, not enough possession, small sample. They're going to get back to at least maybe not dominating the the league like they did last year, but at least performing well enough. They're going to, they're going to, they're going to get better, but I think it's Wiggins and clay. That's, that's where you have to, Draymond Green is not going to shoot this well, but his defense is is what it always is. Like he he gets one of the friendliest whistles around the league, which I I don't mean that in like a critical way. I just mean he leverages that better than everyone. He's hanging around. You can be critical of Draymond this year. It's okay. I think he's <laughs> but he's he, you know he's he he he's always in the paint. He's you know I always make quickly comparisons. Draymond Green is six foot seven quickly with a crazy wingspan, like. He is, he somehow is a big who is playing free safety and has elite rim protection. He is one of the most unique, valuable defenders we've ever seen in the history of the sport. And he's still doing it. Um, his shooting is going to come down to earth, but he's fine. Looney's still everywhere. He's still hounding the offensive glass. Steph Curry, I don't care what the impact data says, or excuse me, what the, what the on-off data says. Steph Curry is still Steph Curry. He's amazing. Um, I think EPM still loves him. I think he's like a top 10 player. This he's year still top. I, he might be more than top 10. Yeah. He's still up. Yeah. Um, uh, weird, weird aside, Chet Holmgren fifth, like, 
Holy cow! Uh, we we got to devote wait. like a whole a whole pod to him. What what a wait, play! Wait till he faces off against Big Mitch. <laughs> oh, that's I just what a what a season that guy's having. Um, but I agree that Mitch will give him. I hope Mitch gives him trouble. That'll be a fun um, matchup. It'll be a really fun. Matchup. Yeah, for sure. So I think I mean you look at Wiggins. Oh my goodness, sub fifty percent true shooting percentage. Um, he's not his assist percentage is a career low. Career low, half of what it's been every year in Golden State. He's not passing at all. Um, turnover percentage, career high. His ter- turnover percentage is twice as high as his assist percentage, Andrew Wiggins is. Um, he's just doing nothing well right now. Absolutely nothing. Steal percentage, career low. Block percentage, lowest it's been since 2017. Rebound percentage, I mean, just across the board, he has been a worse basketball player in every way. Um on one hand, this clearly isn't reflective of who he's been, especially since he's come to Golden State. Uh, but similar to what you were saying about Jaron Jackson Jr., there's got to be something going on off the court because this makes no sense. He's 28 years old. This is supposed to be his oh. absolute prime years. If I was the Warriors, you know, with Steph and Draymond getting a little older, Clay getting a little older, I would have expected whatever's happening to Clay Thompson now. I would have expected a little drop off from Stephen Draymond. And I would have hoped to counteract this with better Wiggins. I would have assumed that Wiggins was going to take on more of a role and get even better. Instead, he's having the worst season of his career by far. And I think that's really, really hurting them. I think any positive uptick, any progression you see, it's going to start and end with him figuring it out. And if he figures it out, I still believe in this team because I still believe that they answered their number one most important question and problem, which is what the hell do we do when Steph Curry's not on the court? We're 20 games into a season, and right now, first of all, they're losing Steph Curry's minutes, which, you know, that goes along with the starting lineup. But look, Steph Curry is Steph Curry. He's supposed to figure it out. His impact has always been insane, and I was shocked to see that they're still losing his minutes. And to me, that says, oh, his teammates must be really bad. Well, I don't know, because guess what? He also has the second worst off-court net rating. They're winning his non-minutes by three point, or his off minutes by 3.7 per hundred. Andrew Wiggins is by far the worst there. They're winning the non-Wiggins minutes by 8.4 per hundred. Um, all this is to say, if Wiggins finds it and Clay Thompson shoots a little bit better, they're only those couple of moves away from me being like, I think they can still win a championship. So I I don't think this is real, but I want to add a very, very important disclaimer that I don't think this is real if 28-year-old Andrew Wiggins d- didn't just forget how to play basketball. I, if Andrew I, Wiggins remembers how to play basketball, I don't think anything we've seen from the Warriors so far reflects who they truly are as a team, and I think they can still win a championship. Yeah, I just wanted to jump in super quick because I wanted to mention to your point about them losing the Steph Curry uh, or losing this, obviously the Steph Curry on minutes and winning the off minutes. Um, I think that that's just a clear indicator of of noise in the uh, in the lineup data, because to me, it's clearly the fact that he's sharing the court with Wiggins and Clay so much that they're just dragging his ability and the entire Warriors ability to win minutes. Um, so that that's the reason for that. And I think that we can tell that by EPM having him as a plus 6.4 offensively, um, which is which might even be one of the highest of his careers uh, in terms of his impact offensively. So I don't think we're seeing any regression from Steph whatsoever. He's shooting 43% from three um, on ridiculous volume as always. He's shooting really well from the rim. His true 
true shooting is at 67.7%. He's not turning the ball over. Well, he's turning the ball over a little more than he has in the past, but I think we're seeing still peak Steph Curry. I think it's just the guys that he's sharing the court with. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah, I mean, I just... I don't agree with that. I don't agree with your part about the off minutes at all. I, th- I mean, we talked about this a few episodes ago. I think it's all to do with Chris Paul. Chris Paul's in the 88th percentile of EPM, and that's why I think they can – I don't think it's just random that they're winning the non-Steph Curry minutes. I think Chris Paul is a driver of winning basketball. He has been his entire career, and I think that he's elevating the bench players. I mean, look, we talked about Kuminga. Kuminga, is he – is he great? No, he's not great. But guess what? They're winning the Kumingo minutes. They're winning all the bench players' minutes. And I think Chris Ball is the is the most important factor there. And EPM reflects what his impact this season so far has been. And I think the film backs it up too. Chris Ball's been terrific. Just to be clear, my point is not that they're winning the Steph Curry off minutes because Chris Paul is playing. Like that may be the case. My point is that Steph Curry's performance in terms of the team performance is being dragged down by the guys that he's playing with. I think if Chris Paul was playing with those same guys, I don't think they would be like, oh, it doesn't matter. Give Chris Paul anyone and they win those minutes. I I think because we can also see that in the impact data that Curry's offensive impact is like triple or maybe quadruple what Chris Paul's has been so far yeah 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 for sure steph Steph is a way better basketball player than chris paul but you said i i guess i maybe misunderstood but you said that the off minutes being positive is mostly just noise and i oh i meant i meant with regard to uh, it looking like curry's like you know having a negative impact like they're better without him on the court that's what i was talking about specifically yeah yeah so i i would agree that wiggins and clay right now are bigger negatives than anybody on the bench unit so right exactly steph is being hurt by sharing minutes but i agree with that but i do think that's the thrust of my point is that i think that they can maintain this level of effectiveness with their bench unit and if clay and wiggins just find some level of positive regression, all of a sudden you have a starting unit that's one of, you know, if they can be an average to above average starting unit with this bench unit, I think they can be a really good team. Um, I think there was some reporting. Uh, it was one of those weird, like maybe leaked reports or whatever, suggesting that Wiggins, I mean, he had something going on last year, right? With his dad, where his dad got really sick or something. And like, he was away from the team for a while, came back for the playoffs um, I guess the reporting is that he did not, he didn't train very hard this offseason to the least, uh, apparently showed up in training camp and there were reports, I guess, that the organization or people in the organization were disappointed, um, kind of in the condition he showed up in. Uh, I think they said the same thing for clay. Um, and I mean, look, I don't care about, I, I haven't looked at the impact numbers that you guys t- talked about, but like every time I watch that team. I'm just like Clay plays like a fucking idiot, and Wiggins is—he's just bad. Like he, I, there's no other. Way. Jeff, Jeff said it right. Like he, it literally looks like he forgot how to play basketball at the time. The free throw stuff with him is insane. Where it's like you can't make free throws now either. Um, but Clay, it's just like, dude, I'm I'm like, are you trying to like win a championship in 2023, or are you trying to prove that you're still you know 2016 Western Conference Finals Game Six Clay? Because those are not the same thing. And it feels like every time I watch him, he's always trying to prove that he's still like 2016 Western Conference Finals, Game 6. Like, It's like, dude, you're fucking in Game 17 of the regular season. Can you just take a normal corner to three? Is that okay? Or like, can you just like pass the ball to somebody? Like, He's just trying to do way too much. 
it has not helped that Draymond, I think, like, yes, they have continuity, but Draymond's been in and out of the lineup, right, for a variety of, like, he's been suspended and whatever. Like, he's had shit going on. Um, so I think that's part of it also. I still think Looney is really good. He It feels like he doesn't have – like, it feels like something is a little bit off with him, but he's still really good. Like, it's not like he's bad. Um, but honestly, I, I will just say this. Like, I think I think they just need to – mix things up like that lineup maybe it gets it back maybe it doesn't you don't need to start with it that that's for damn sure um and i think it's time that moses moody gets starts um i think it's time that you know look everything comes to an end uh great line from the sopranos uh but like i think it's over for clay man like he's just if he's gonna play like this like, he's just going to play stupid. Like, I'm not talking – like, can he physically play NBA basketball still? Yes, he can. But there's something going on with him. I mean, he had this thing the other day, right, where he's, like, getting into it with a reporter who asked about him starting. And I'm just like, you know, last year he had that whole thing where he's sitting on the bench and, like, they're getting blown out by the Suns, and he starts, like, pointing at his hand and, like, counting the amount of rings he has. And it's just like, what the fuck are you even talking about right now? Like, like, like this has nothing to do with you being – garbage right now at NBA basketball. And I just feel like he's I, I saw that that interview he did or that that press conference he had with that reporter that I, I was like this reminds me so much of like when Melo went to OKC and a reporter asked him about coming off the bench. And he was like, what do you mean come off the bench? Like, I'm not coming off the bench. I'm fucking Carmelo Anthony. And I wa- I'm watching Clay and I'm like like Steve Kerr can't even have the conversation with them, and Steve Kerr won't. Because like, and and to be fair, like you want to say what do you want with these players? Steve Kerr is doing an awful job this year. He's been garbage, like just atrocious. Somebody like he pulled Moody from a game last week where he hit three threes in the fourth quarter because he's Against like the Kings. That was nuts. I was like, I couldn't believe that. And I have, I have, uh, you know, like I, I have like Andrew Wiggins on one of my fantasy teams, so I'm like cool with him coming back in, but I'm like. I wouldn't do that. Like, that seems really bad. Um, And it was. It was terrible. They lost the game. But, like, he's got to – they've got to move on from this old guard. Like, Steph is still Steph. And if you want to put up with Draymond's antics because he's still – like Jeff mentioned, like, the defensive impact is still there. Um, I I still think offensively, like, the last two, three years, he is so brutal sometimes with the shots that he won't take and some of the stuff he passes up. But I get like the overall impact is there. You want to roll with those two guys, that's fine. But man, I, I think Clay, he, this has to be his last year. Like, and, and honestly, I would be, I'd be happy to trade him if I were them right now. The Clay, the Clay thing is, it's like depressing. Actually, I'm, 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 I'm gonna, I'm gonna come off as a hater here, but I've never, I've never been sympathetic to the Clay cause, like. He, he's going to be a Hall of Fame. This idea that he carries this perpetual chip on his shoulder, when in my opinion, he's going to go down as one of the most overrated historical players ever. I mean, he's never been one of the three. Alan Houston, Alan Houston didn't get to play with Steph Curry. Alan Houston was a better player than Clay Thompson. Clay Thompson has never been one of the three most important players on a championship team in his life. And you hear people talk about him, and it's. This I it started with you know and and I think XJ will have some sympathy for this because he's all about you know the scientific data behind biases. The bias started the second he and Steph were referred to as the Splash Brothers because it put them in this 
category together. <laughs> like, oh, these, they've got the two best shooters of all time. No, bitch. They've got the best shooter of all time and a guy <laughs> who's really good at shooting. Like, no. <laughs> I'm sorry. One is irreplaceable. The other play, like, I remember there was this awesome video Reggie Miller that. is better than Clay. Like I could list like right. the, the shooting guards that are better than Clay, and it's not like there's a ton. Like I, I'm sorry, he's he's a Hall of Famer. I get it. He's absolutely a Hall of Famer. But but like <laughs> it's none of I, none of. I, and, I, and I, wanna, think, I think his Hall of Fame yeah, ahead, credentials are like so. If you put him in like the Clippers for the last his career, is he a Hall of Famer? Like this is the thing with Clay that I think is so hard is like. I'm not. I would never punish him for having the good fortune of playing with Steph Curry. But to your point, it's like, yeah, like they're and they're, Draymond and Draymond, yeah, by the way. Yeah, I, yeah and Draymond. I think he had the good, good, good fortune of playing with Draymond. Like right. Draymond, to me, is so much more a foundational part of this Warriors oh, dynasty yeah. than Clay Thompson. And I think if you asked 100 percent of basketball fans, they would say it's the opposite. And so that's why I I think Draymond has a reason to have a chip on his shoulder. Like if I was Draymond and I knew how good and important I was and everybody thought I was just this big joke, like, oh, you average eight points a game, I would be annoyed too. And I would I would but Clay Thompson like pointing to his fingers, like, dude, everybody respects <laughs> you. There's nobody in the world who thinks Clay Thompson is like, oh, you actually suck. Like, no, you're I am probably quote unquote a hater. And I think he's a lock hall of famer who deserves tons of respect. There's nobody out there who doesn't think Clay Thompson is really good. And just I, I just could not be more annoyed with this idea that like, oh, we haven't fully appreciated Clay. No, he is. I, I'm sorry, actually, I think he's been over appreciated. Right. He's I, I, I hear what I hear what you both are saying, and I think I think it's a to me it's balancing like the kind of accolades that he's received relative to the impact that he's made that makes it feel like this, but. I think you summarized it great, Jeff. I do think he's a Hall of Famer. Um, I think it's the, some of the things like, oh, the biggest snub of the All-75 team is Clay Thompson. Like, that. that's that's ridiculous. Like, obviously, to me, I would put in, I would even put in Jokic over him at the time when they were doing the All-75. Jokic was already a better, you know, in terms of his candidacy for a Hall of Fame and in, in terms of his impact on the game, he was already there. Even Draymond, like, it's just kind of funny because they're both on the same team and we're talking about the best 75 players ever. And all the attention was like, wow, they left Clay off. They left Clay off. And you didn't hear a thing about Draymond Green in terms of the, the impact that Draymond Green has made um, with regard to changing the way that the positions have 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 been historically used and 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 his impact defensively, one of the greatest defensive players in the history of the game. That wasn't even a conversation. Nobody thought about Draymond Green. So I I agree with you guys to an extent. I also still think that Clay is is was extremely extremely impactful for them in terms of what they wanted to do fit like a glove in terms of what they wanted to do the perfect player to play off of steph curry um shot over 40 percent from three and at you know only one year it was under 41 percent from three one two three four five six seven eight years in a row um obviously a lot of that is due to the gravity that that curry was providing but I mean, he, he, he was absolutely he, he, incredible. You can't just go and shoot 40% from three. No, he, he no. is one of the best. He is one of the best shooters ever. Like, I want right. to make that very clear to anyone who's like, oh my God, this loser. Like, I almost yeah. feel like we're talking about Jordan Poole last week. Like, I, I hope everyone, <laughs> I hope everyone listening can, I hope everyone listening can understand that beneath all this is a huge level of respect for what, again, is a Hall of Famer and a very, very good basketball player. I'm speaking 
relatively relative to like this perceived slight that is always there. I just couldn't disagree with that more. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's fair. So I just wanted to reiterate that part. It just obviously Clay was exceptional across, you know, a, a number of seasons, maybe five or six seasons before he had the injury. And I do think he I don't know that they could have easily replaced him and still won championships. Like I wouldn't I wouldn't go out and say that. But I, I agree that Curry and, and Draymond were would you, more would you think important. It in your more private. Would you think would you think <laughs> it internally in your more private moments, though? No, it depends on it depends on who the player is. Like, I, yeah, I, I would say anything to our audience. I don't care. Yeah, but like you had like a couple of drinks. Like, what are you thinking here? <laughs> I think he was, I, uh, I think, what I think I think his defense has been overrated. He's always been known as like oh the two way player. This is this is why we host a podcast. <laughs> he's oh, always he's, been known he's, as like the the elite two way guard of or wing of you know the the modern era, and I think that that is silly to me. That's ridiculous. Like he's been a, a pretty good on ball defender. <laughs> like that's been his role. Like, who's a better and Clay? I, Paul George is like thousand percent a better player. Of course, they used yeah, to, of course. They used to yeah. literally have that conversation. I swear to God, when I was about to, I was about to ask who is better, Paul George or Clay Thompson. Yeah, it's that not even was, close. Yeah, that's, I that's a silly hear, com- I conversation. I can hear Reggie Miller, Reggie Miller being like, <laughs> oh, well, we always talk about Clay Thompson shooting, but nobody talks about his defense. No, everybody talks about his defense. He's not even the best defender on his team. He's not even the second best defender on his team. And when Kevin Durant was there, he's not even the third best defender on his team. I mean, team. I'll just and, say, like, I, I've always thought that, like, I think Steph Curry's defense is like super underrated. Absolutely, and I've always yeah, and I've always thought that Clay's. I'm like, I watch it. I'm just like, what? Like, I I can't remember a series where I'm like, oh man, Clay locked him up. Like that's his value, right? Like, like I've seen Quentin Grimes have a like actual like ingrained in my head lockdown playoff big time moment against a big time scorer. Like I'm genuinely do not remember that from Clay Thompson. Like when I, I say Clay was versatile. So I think that yeah. the thing is he could switch onto a four and hold his own in these circumstances yes. where, you know, everything was a mess and scramble. And it's like, okay, we ended up with this four on Clay and we'll be fine. Like, I think that that was some of his strength. And I think that was helpful for having these, you know, Clay, Draymond Green, Steph Curry lineups. I think that the, the synergy there was really, really good. Yes. And that's why I don't think Clay is just like, oh, we could take out, we could take him out and put in any two guard that could shoot and it would be the same thing. I think that he had some strength that, that worked perfectly with that group but i think in a vacuum he's overrated in terms of his defensive impact courtney lee or clay thompson (laughs) (laughs) we've taken this a little bit too far can can we also just have some appreciation and maybe disdain for kevin durant but appreciation for the fact that steph curry clay thompson draymond green kevin durant andre iguodala were on the same team at the same time like that has to be the that's this idea like remember the 96 bulls versus versus 2017 warriors conversation can you imagine if you put the 2017 warriors in a time machine and had them (laughs) go play basketball against the 96 bulls like they would they, they would win by like 700 points it would it's that conversation was always so ridiculous the one i'm actually a little bit more sympathetic to is the 2001 lakers just because Shaq, w- Shaq wasn't just big and athletic for his time. Shaq, if you, if you took prime Shaq and placed him in 2023, he would dominate the NBA just like he did. And so, like, I'm at least sympathetic to that because Kobe is one of the greatest players of all time. And Shaq is a, a unique physical force that I don't know how the Warriors deal with that. So I'm at least a little bit sympathetic to that. The 96 Bulls thing is just so silly to me. And they were starting, like, Luke Longley, you know, like, oh, okay, Luke, what, what are you going to do? What, come on, 2017 what, Warriors, what are you going to do with that? You know, I don't know. The, the Durant thing is just like, uh, I mean, 
he's just an interesting, weird player. Um, and hopefully he finds whatever the fuck he's looking for. I don't really care. He wants to win a championship his way. I, I do like I do like <laughs> that in my head. I'm like Steph Curry has four championships. Kevin Durant has zero. <laughs> in your personal it, record book. Yeah. yeah. It does it makes sense though. Like yeah. I, I and I'm not even a Durant hater. And I actually think, by the way, that as bla- as blasphemous as this might sound to Warriors fans, and maybe even you two who like me think Steph Curry is underrated historically, I don't think the Warriors win another championship if Durant doesn't sign there during that era. I, I think the and the reason I think that is because the 2017 Cavs were better than the 2016 Cavs. So if you change nothing but Durant doesn't go to Golden State, I think the Cavs win 2017 easier than 2016. And then I think that Kyrie doesn't leave Cleveland. And I just think things are much different for the next it's, five years. It's always it's always tough, though, because like they had whatever it was, like $35 million in cap space. So yeah. it's like if Durant doesn't go, yes, but like – Maybe they still get like I don't know somebody good, and then it changes everything. But I yes, like they they could not have just like run it back again. Correct. Yeah, but with that being said, you're the the uh, the the baseline of your point that the, that Warriors team, as valuable as Kevin Durant was, Steph Curry was the system, and like so he deserves more credit for those rings than Durant does, in my yeah, opinion. And I, I don't think that's hating. I think that's a reasonable thing to say. Yeah, this is not LeBron going to Miami. This was like Kevin Durant going to exactly Steph Curry's team, and Steph Curry's a better player. So, yeah. Yep. So we're 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 all three in agreement again. Damn it, we we need to find <laughs> things to disagree on. This is, this is let's uh let, let's uh let's talk about the magic. Um, okay, this will this will be our last one because uh, Schwinn's given us a ton of time, and uh, we'll, we'll 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 talk about the magic, and then we'll we'll close it out. Yeah. So uh, Schwinn, before we hopped on, brought up. Paolo Bancaro, who's shooting a ridiculous 44% from three. Um, I want to point out something weird that I saw about Bancaro, which – so the Magic are just great this year. They're 14-6. and six. Um, They beat – they, they've taken care of business. They don't really have – they beat the Celtics, right, Schwinn? Is, is that their big win? They beat, they beat Boston once? Yes. Yep, yep. Um, beat Boston. So they, they beat Boston. Um, Jonathan Isaac off the bench has – I mean, the, the Magic have a 93.3 defensive rating when he's in the game, which is just ridiculous in the modern NBA. Uh, Jalen Suggs has been a revelation as a starter. He's shooting well, which people didn't expect. His defense is, you know, he he performs at an all-defense level as a, as a guard defender. Paolo Bancaro is shooting 45% from three, and the Magic are nine points per hundred better when he sits than when he plays. Uh, he has the word they're, they're plus 10.2 per hundred when he doesn't play. Bancaro is just a very, very weird player for me. He was last year. I, I, I have to be honest. I wasn't super high on him last year. I definitely wasn't as high as other people were because I still don't really know what he is in this league. Obviously, if he can shoot, that changes things. But is he a 4-5 hybrid? Is he a mellow 3-4 hybrid who can play? I, I still am not quite sure what he is can this, I, uh, this, I, this year. I, so, so Schwinn, I'm just going to turn it over to you. Is the shooting real, and what do you think of Bancaro as a player, and what do you think of the Magic as a team? I don't think the shooting is real. Uh, and I'll, I will specifically say I don't think it's real. I, I, it could become real. I'm not closing the door on him ever becoming a really, actually good three-point shooter. 
I don't think it's real right now because his free throw percentage has gone nowhere. Um, and I just generally tend to believe that that is a pretty good indicator um, of like improvement or not, which is also funny enough uh, related to the Knicks. Like even amidst RJ Barrett's shooting slump right now, I do buy that like the three point shot is better because his free throw percentage has been steady. I think he's at, he's at like 84% for the season. If you split it up into seven and seven, it was like 84 and a half for the first seven and then 83 for the second seven. So like, that's like genuine progress. Um, anyway, to bring it back to Paolo. So I don't think that's real. And I want to just throw this out there. And I don't mean this as an insult. What if he's like, he could just be like Julius Randle. Like, this is my could, comp for, this is my exact comp for Paolo. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, he could just be Julius Randle, which is, and if he's Julius Randle with more consistent processing and uh, maybe better emotional control at times. Um, like that's a fucking awesome player, you know. Like we've seen the good version of Julius, is, and and actually he had a play a uh, couple games ago. Not it was not when they played the Nets when they got destroyed. Uh, who'd they play before that? Was it? Was it like the they Wizards played the wi- they played the Wizards twice, right? Yeah, I think that's who it was. So I think it's the Wizards. But they had a play. There was a play uh, towards the end of the first quarter where, like, I don't know, they Wizards came down. They put uh, Goga in a pick and roll, and he just like he just didn't defend it. Like he didn't give a shit. Like he kind of like came out. He did like a ju- very Julius Randle type of pick and roll defense, right? It's like just stands there. They make the pocket pass, and instead of like trying to go over or like whatever, he just kind of like smacks down, and it gives him an and one. And I saw Paolo go over and was like, got in his face and was like, "Come on, like what are we doing here? Like let's pick it up." And I thought that was like really impressive because. They have been a really good defensive team this year, but Paolo himself was not a guy who came in with a strong defensive reputation. If anything, he was considered a defensive liability. Um, I personally, like, I thought he was should go number one. Not that my opinions on the draft, especially nowadays, matters much. Um, but, like, I just thought the scoring potential that you saw from him at Duke was really, really impressive. And then I was just like, okay, like, I get that he wasn't good at defense at Duke, but, like, he probably didn't give a shit. And he's big, and he's athletic, and I feel like this is probably a good starting point. Um, and I've been impressed with him uh, from what I've seen from him in the NBA in that sense. Like, do I think he's a great defender? No, but I do think like some of the stuff we know with Julius, right. Where it's like, you just get these like five minute sequences where he's just like, I'm not, I'm not just not going to try. I'm actually not going to do anything on defense. Like, like I haven't seen any of that from Paolo. Um, I think being with a guy like Franz and just kind of like, even a guy like Suggs, Suggs is a really big tone setter. Um, I think that helps to kind of give him the right mindset, but like, I'm, I think he's just a four. Like, I don't think he's a five. I don't think he's a three. I think he's a four who at some point in his career will become good enough at shooting from three that it doesn't hurt your lineups assuming your lineups have sufficient shooting around him and next to him alongside him um and i do think like look the two point percentage with him you want to see it get higher um which is a little bit concerning but like i just think the natural touch that he shows at times is really impressive around the rim he just needs to get way more comfortable with like the in-between game right and and taking pull-up jumpers and stuff like that but yeah, I mean, I, I'm in on Paolo, but I, I think the, the shooting is fake. I have the same take as Schwinn. Fuck. 
um, I know I, I, I honestly, most of it, we're lockstep. Like I, on a Nick's film school podcast last year called Bancaro, just right-handed Julius Randall and, uh, took, took a lot of flack for that. But I, I do think that's, that's his best comp. And I think that that's his style of play as well. I think, I do think the processing is better. I don't buy the shooting. I don't think the shooting's real. Um, and for the same reason that Schwinn said, like I look at free throw shooting, I think that means a lot. And the fact that his free throw shooting is actually down from last year. Um, he's shooting 67% from the line versus 74% last year while having this crazy, insane 44, 45% three point shooting. Like that just screams, like, I'm not real. Don't believe me. Like, that's what that sounds like to me. So, <laughs> so I, I, I mean, but I, I do like his playmaking and I think he can kind of get where he wants to go on the court and he's 21 years old. I mean, he's 21, he's 6'10", like 240 or 250 or whatever it is. He's still going to add strength. He's going to get bigger and stronger. Like, I do think he's going to be uh, probably a slightly improved version of Julius Randle, which is a really good player. Like that's, that's, you know, that's, that's amazing player. Um, so I think I, I could, yeah. He's yeah, also, he's, he's already got like somewhat similar type of uh, passing splits to Julius. Like he's at 6.9 assists per hundred possessions, which is a big leap from his rookie year. He's at 5.4 per hundred possessions uh, to 4.4 turnovers. So he's got that like, he play makes, but you're like, <laughs> could you turn it over just a little bit less? Like, yeah, is that- yeah, yeah, yeah. He did, yeah. He definitely made a big leap, especially yeah, in the assist percentage and and just like his overall kind of responsibility in that offense, I think as well. Um, with with Franz. Franz playing well, but kind of like not, I, I, I expected a little bit more from Franz coming into this year. It's only been 20 games. I think we'll see it moving forward. He's shooting like 33% from three low forties from the mid range. And, and, you know, he's still doing a ton of other things on both sides of the court uh, as far as the magic. Um, are they real? Uh, I don't think they're real in as, in so far as they're going to be a top three seed in the east like i i I don't buy that i I don't think you can get that far just based and almost entirely on defense uh jalen suggs is their best impact uh epm player and it almost is all not almost it is entirely from his defensive impact um (laughs) in terms of you know his defensive impact is uh 3.8 which is absurd for a guard to have it's just that's unreal uh, completely unreal um and his offensive impact is still better than re- replacement level at a minus uh, minus point three. So he's overall playing amazingly, shooting thirty seven percent from three. I also don't really buy that right now because his shooting has never been that good before, and, and we're seeing it come back down to earth a little bit. So I just don't think this team has enough offensive firepower. But I think their defense is absolutely legitimate. Like their guards are all insane defenders. They, I mean, even Markel Fultz has played really good defense at times. Jonathan Isaac is think is is probably the most underrated defensive player in the NBA right now, just not really thought about given the amount of time that he's missed, but his versatility and impact on that end is is completely absurd. He can switch, he can go, he can really play next to anyone. It's mm-hmm. it's it's incredible. So, I think their defense is 100% real. They're going to be a problem for anybody who has to play them in the playoffs. I don't think they're going to stay like a top 3-4 seed in the East though. I just I'm going to bring it back to Bancaro just for a second because I think it relates to what you just said about being a problem in the playoffs and projecting forward, projecting the team forward from a macro perspective. I think one difference between Bancaro and Julius is that Bancaro offers plus rim protection um, in a way that Julius has never and likely will never. 
Um, I don't know if it's due to wingspan, due to effort. I, I, I have a feeling I know exactly what it is. I think, it, I think it's the latter, buddy. We can't okay. figure it out. Um, why, why can't yeah. we? <laughs> We're just trying to figure out who did the no, um, um, And I think that that will let them. I, I agree with you, Schwinn. I, I don't think he's anything other than a pure four. But I do think a power forward who can, like even Kevin Durant, who can uh, mask it, masquerade as a center is incredibly valuable. And I think that the Magic, if they can have 100... Look, Goga has been good. Yeah, Mo, yeah. Wagner, Mo, Mo Wagner is helpful off the bench. If the Magic are in a tough first-round series or even a second-round series, I think they have to be giving 100% of their center minutes to uh, against most teams, to Wendell Carter Jr. and Paolo. I just yeah, think I mean, that Paolo... No, I, I was just going to say, and the, another thing, they haven't even had Wendell Carter Jr. this year. Right. Yeah. Um, And so him coming back will be helpful. I think that their defense to XJ's point is definitely real. And I think that when they can do their switch, everything with Suggs and Franz and Paolo um, and I, I mean, Isaac can, Isaac can pretty much switch one through five. Anthony black is Anthony black is already a good defender. Um, I think, I, I think that their defense is definitely legit. And regarding their offense, I think that I hope Suggs, I hope Suggs' defensive impact gives him a little bit more latitude to create offensively and expand his role there. Because I do think that while his shooting might, he might just be a, you know, a 34, 35% shooter that might, or maybe even lower 37% might be real, but I think he showed enough flashes in college of somebody who can get into the paint and collapse defenses that way that if he can get consistent minutes and his role offensively can be a little bit bigger, be allowed to run a little bit more pick and roll, I think we'll see his offensive impact, his overall offensive impact improve. And I think the Magic will be better off if they uh, let him do that because I, I think he can be a complete player. I think he can be the third banana next to, you know, if Bancaro and Franz end up being what the Magic think they're going to be. I think that he can be what, you know, Knicks fans – think quickly could be you know that kyle lowry second slash third best player who's incredibly impactful on both sides of the ball um i'm not sure i see the magic winning a playoff series this year i'm not sure i see them i I think the knicks are better than them this season but i really really like their long-term trajectory um yeah I, i i think they probably drop off to like the five six area um it, and honestly when and i don't even think it's like a bad thing it wouldn't surprise me if they drop off even into the play-in um but like they're really good their future looks really good uh a guy i i just i think they have they actually have a lot of guys that have like the kind of demeanor that i think would fit in new york like i think Suggs is like a tibbs type player right like i think cole anthony he deserves a lot of credit. Like I did not like him as a prospect too much coming out. He's really, he's having a really nice season. Um, and he's like really developed well for them, you know, he, and he's accepted coming off the bench. Like he's bought into his role and he is executing it well. And he gives them like, he does have a level of shot creation. They need, he has a level of shooting that they need. Like he's just a solid player. Um, and like that, I think that's kind of like the Knicks in the sense of like, they don't, have minutes going out to like a Zaire Williams type of just absolute shit show, right? It's like you don't get those freebie minutes going out. 
Um, though I guess maybe against us, it's Quentin Grimes right now. All right. No, I'm not shitting on Quentin Grimes. Um, but like that, it, it, to your point about like why you wouldn't want to play them in a playoff series, like that's the reason, right? Cause you're like, yeah, like we're going to, their offense will stall out in the playoffs. I'm like a thousand percent sure of that, but they're going to drag you into the mud with them and it's going to be an ugly series. And I like, I, I'm telling you, man, this Eastern conference playoffs this year, whenever it happens, uh, I don't think people are like prepared for the amount of teams that are ready to just like turn everything into like a fucking street fight, you know, like the Knicks, the Heat, the Magic. Like I, those three teams are very specifically. I even think Boston has this like ability now to do that, um, with like getting Drew and having Porzingis at the five, like just making these games hideous and ugly. Like it, it's going to happen. And as a uh 90s baby, uh, I'm all here to watch the return of my glorious 75 72 playoff games i said i said the same thing to my dad during the last knicks game schwinn i was like you know in the tibbs era the knicks fans have seen two good teams two good enjoyable teams that were pretty much exact opposites you know the the 2021 knicks were really good on defense not good on offense and then the the opposite happened in 2022 2023 and I personally like that the Knicks are going back to being, you know, a more Tibbs, really good defense and kind of because I think it's more sustainable for them to keep their defense in the playoff. Like XJ was weeks away from the postseason last year being like, yeah, they're a top five offense, but I don't think this is sustainable at all. And then they just it it was predictable, you know, in how they were getting their offense that it was going to fall off a cliff. I do think the way the Knicks are getting wins right now, they they are more likely to sustain it and repeat it in the postseason. Um, yeah. And I, I find that more enjoyable as someone who obviously wants the Knicks to do as well as they can do. Yeah, I mean, one thing I'll say about that, uh, and I do have to get out of here, unfortunately, right now in a little bit, but like, um, so one, to your point about like it being more sustainable, the fact that they're actually a good three-point shooting team this year matters a lot in terms of like, projecting into the playoffs and um the, your chances of your offense not stalling out the way that i mean calling it an offense last year in the playoffs is a uh, disservice to offenses um but like i to your point about like return like being more of a defensive team like i have had this theory kicking around in my head for a long time that like i just have not been able to write out um but like i think teams in across sports is, in general but like sticking to the nba teams have like like history and traditions and like certain things work in certain cities certain play styles work in certain cities certain play styles work in certain organizations franchises like i never felt like when we hired mike d'antoni i was like this is stupid and makes no sense because like this is not what like you go to the garden and that fan base is not sitting there dying to watch 135, 130 shootout. That's not what this fan base cares about. That's not when the Knicks have been great, when they've had good teams and they've had success. That is not what they've been about. Like, like I think something about sports and, and not just sports, like there's a corporate culture at different companies, right? Like these are things that are just like there and and exist beyond like the control of individuals and i think one thing with tibbs for sure is like tibbs is always identified to me as like i might not like him in various points in time i might not agree with him all the time 
but he does feel very much like a, I'm like, no, this is a Knicks coach. This is like what a Knicks coach is supposed to be. He's supposed to be losing his mind constantly. He's supposed to be screaming the entire game. He's supposed to be intense. Like that's what it's supposed to be. Um, and I think he's instilled this like toughness, like that the players that can play for him, that like playing for him, that take his instructions, that appreciate him as a coach inherently have to have these tough qualities about them because you can't do it otherwise. And I think like this team and I think this fan base responds to that. Like, I don't like, yes, I would love if like RJ Barrett had a 45 inch vertical and like, you know, I would love if fucking Steph Curry was a Nick and all this stuff. But like, I think Steph's a tough player. That's why I think it would work. Like, I don't think you can just, I think in this market for this team, there has to be like a level of like physicality and toughness to the individual players and to the collective group. And like, I think it was important that they got back to that in the playoffs last year. And I think it's important that like, again, like to the point of like acquiring players that fit into like what you are. Like, I think it is important that they moved on from Obi who bless his heart. I don't think anybody will ever describe him as like a physical tough, like dude, like DiVincenzo is tough. Like you can, feel it like when he's in the game and now you just have all these dudes out there like say whatever you want about julius nobody there's not a single fucking forward in the league that's like oh I'm so thrilled that i get to go head to head against julius tonight like absolutely not you know like mitchell robinson all these dudes they're just tough and when you play them you feel it and i feel that way about the magic also like when you play that team you're gonna fucking feel it the next day like that is not gonna be fun it is not gonna be fun it is gonna hurt um, and I think there's a lot of these teams now in the East, like those three teams specifically, New York, Miami, Orlando, I think all have very similar underlying ethos of their builds, even if, you know, the roster construction is obviously not the same. And speaking of just, you know, last, last comment on, uh, just maybe the whole pod, but, uh, speaking of Julius, you know, I personally have been hard on him and we've had, we've talked about him a couple of times these first few weeks on this pod, me and Schwinn have talked about him seemingly every post game over at the Strictly post game. You know, we've been hard on him, and I think a lot of that comes from expecting a lot from him. He's shown what he can do. I've never understood this idea that, like, when somebody's playing bad, anybody's playing bad, whether it was RJ last season, whether it was quickly two seasons ago, when you know what a guy can do, you, it's it's fair to hold them to that standard. And with that in mind, we haven't said it on this pod. Julius, uh, you know, about an hour and a half ago was uh, announced as the Eastern Conference Player of the Week. Um, second Nick to win Eastern Conference Player of the Week already this season, which is amazing. Um, I just want to say congrats to him. And, you know, you talk about that mental toughness. He was getting the dirt shoveled on him, you know, mm-hmm. again, to start this season and to come back and to win the Eastern Conference Player of the Week is an amazing bounce back takes a lot of mental toughness and just keep on doing that that's pretty that's pretty awesome yeah and then hopefully we can trade him now no i'm just kidding (laughs) sorry i shouldn't have done that (laughs) um yeah no this was this was a great conversation it's a really great note to end it on uh schwinn we deeply appreciate you coming on and uh, you know as jeff mentioned in the beginning all of your support for hot hand theory 
and the podcast, you know, it's really meant so much for us and, and for you to drop by and just drop by and just give us a couple of hours is, is, <laughs> is, is, is freaking awesome. So thank you so much. Is there anything that you want to share about anything you have going on at the Strickland or anything else? I mean, it's possible that there are one or two people in the audience who are discovering you for the first time. So I, is there anything you want to, you want to share? No, I mean, check out the work that Strickland Jeff's over there too. He does all the post game stuff with us and, uh, yeah, I mean, just check it out website. Twitter, whatever. Um, but yeah, not, nothing to plug other than that. Sweet, sweet, sweet. Yeah. Thanks again. And, yeah. uh, yeah, this was a great episode. Uh, this has been hot hand theory.